1: Monster House presents.
2: Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
1: And I'm Karen Stoltzner.
2: I run into coincidences all the time. Take this episode, for example. The day after this episode drops in our regular feed, I will finally actually visit the subject of this research. Karen used to live near the San Jose estate of Sarah Winchester, but I've never quite made it out there. And I'm excited to finally check this off my paranormal bucket list. But that's kind of the thing, isn't it? Is there anything actually paranormal about this place? Is it really the physical manifestation in real estate form of a woman's lifelong struggle with oppressive spirits? And is it bad storytelling if I remind you that our show's all about trying to find out what's really going on? Karen's book, Haunting America, was probably the first place I ever read the true story of what was really behind the San Jose, California estate of Sarah Winchester. Check our show notes for links to her book and some of the other resources that are mentioned in this show. We've talked about this topic in a few of our episodes, but I believe this is our first dedicated deep dive into the real history of the Winchester Mystery House. Monster dog.
1: So I gathered you guys here today to talk about the Winchester Mystery House. Now, Matt has visited the place before with me. And Blake, I'm not sure if you've been there or not. No.
2: I think the closest I've come is I got into San Francisco. And I think that was about it. (laughs) Good effort. (laughs) Good effort,
1: though. It's close enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's on the bucket list then someday.
2: Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although not for the supernatural reasons. Yeah. Well, Well, it was interesting because when I went there
3: with Karen, the bulk, I think, of the investigation and the research hadn't actually been done yet because this was a chapter for her book, Haunting America, which I highly recommend if you have not not read it and purchased it uh,
2: and uh, given a review on Amazon. Thanks for the plug. I'll just say I'm not her husband, but I also recommend the book. Oh, cool! So there you go. Uh, (laughs) The interesting thing is, is
3: I went into it. With the perspective of the supernatural stuff really, you know, is not true. But what what is just accepted is that she believed in Mm -hmm. the supernatural and she went a little crazy. Uh, And that was kind Mm -hmm. of the the accepted sort of uh, skeptical view on this whole thing. And that's what I went in and finding out I'm completely wrong. So it's a fun story.
1: Yeah, it is, and I agree with you that that was the, the party line for sceptics at the time. We're going to go into the folklore and the legends here in a minute. The tours are interesting too, and we'll we'll talk about that. But uh, anyway, so for Blake getting to San Francisco, he, he was pretty close, but this the uh, Mystery Houses in San Jose, I became interested in the place going back to about 2004 when I moved to the States because I was speaking with a colleague and she said, oh, you're interested in spooky stuff and the paranormal. Have you been to the Winchester Mystery House? And I said, no, I'd seen lots of big posters and road signs and and things like that uh, to the place. And upon looking into it, realized it was a place I'd seen on TV when I was a kid on an episode of Ripley's Believe It or Not. So they'd spoken it, it shown the place and had spoken about the door to nowhere, and I was fascinated with that as a kid.
2: Uh, this was back when it was the, the Jack Plant's hosted version. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yes.
1: Yes. So uh, I was always determined to visit the place uh, when I grew older, and I did, and I've been there a number of times now, and uh, certainly the first time I went as well. I believed in all of the stories that uh, they they told there. I mean. Uh, I guess we're going to get into this shortly anyway. So we'll just start, I think, with the the folklore. um, But there's also some history in this too, because we're talking about people who did exist and uh, going back to the the 19th century. All of these stories surround a woman named Sarah Winchester. Uh, I believe she was born Sarah Lockwood Pardee. And uh, so she's portrayed as this deeply superstitious and obsessive and paranoid crazy woman in all the, the t- stories that are told on the tour. And if you look up the place online, this is pretty much the party line that you're going to hear. So <laughs> she line. was born in New Haven, <laughs> Connecticut in uh, 1839. And in 1862, she married a fellow by the name of William Wirt Winchester. So we'll heard of the Winchester family. They were the owners of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. So this was during the height of the American Civil War as well. And we know them very well for having created a particular model, 73, uh, the Winchester model 73, which was the gun that won the West. So Blake, I got you to dig into this a little bit more. Guns aren't my thing. You guys have had more experience with this kind of thing. Uh,
2: I've heard the gun that won the West associated with the Winchester 73 repeating rifle. And I've also heard Mm -hmm. it uh, associated with the Colt Peacemaker. Uh, Of course, the Colt, Peacemaker is the famous revolver. Uh, it's known for that other phrase, uh, God created man, and Colonel Colt made them equal. And they sometimes called that pistol the great equalizer. But in the past... uh um, have never
1: heard of that before.
2: Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're
1: no. those circles. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't either. I mean, I guess the thing you need to remember about the American Old West is that, uh, first of all, it's not that old. We're talking about, like, you know, from the 1870s to the 1920s and second of all it's largely myth uh the the american western uh both film radio shows and fiction uh penny novels that sort of thing um these made mythic stories about the wild west and frontier justice and that sort of stuff but it's largely made up it's largely not a real thing and when i was trying to like run this to ground like when did the this this phrase and I've heard two versions of it, the, the the gun that won the West and the gun that tamed the West.
1: I haven't heard that one either.
2: Yeah, if if you go back it was really popular in the nineteen fifties and I was kind of trying to run down why and I kind of went backwards from present day, you know, working my way backwards through history. Around nineteen fifty is when it really becomes a big part of uh, advertising campaigns. And lots and lots of news coverage. And that's because uh, in the year 1950, there was a film made called Winchester 73. With a, it's a really fun Western. I like it a lot with Jimmy Stewart. And it kind of ties into this this marketing campaign that they had. Uh, Winchester had wanted to like make their guns kind of exclusive. So they would do firing tests on the barrels. And then if a barrel was exceptionally accurate, um they would stamp it like you know this is one in a hundred and then if it was really really accurate they would call it this is one in a thousand and they would stamp that on the barrel and it would give like they could charge significantly more let's say a rifle cost you know a normal rifle costs twenty five dollars then these ultra rare variants could be a hundred so people would be paying you know quite a bit more for these custom barrels right. and that's kind of what the, the movie's about is like one of these special exclusives and so these were real, but the, the, the campaign only ran for a little while because people realized, well, wait a minute, instead of seeing it as like, here's this exclusive, and then they've got this middle ground in the one in a hundred, and then they have their regular run. People started mm-hmm. saying, well, maybe these regular runs are inferior. And, and so they stopped the campaign. But in 1948, it was 75 years since the introduction of the Winchester 73, and so that led to lots of news stories about the 75th anniversary of this famous gun. And then, of course, the eponymous Winchester 73 movie. Uh, so that really cemented that phrase in people's mind about this being the gun that won the West. Oh. But as you can tell, that's significantly far away from the essentially nonexistent events. And when I was doing research on this, the Colt pistol kept yeah. coming up again and again as well. And the funny thing was, all the gun historians seemed to agree Neither of these guns won the West, that the frontier gun that really did the most Mm. yeoman work was the shotgun, (laughs) that the shotgun by far was the one that settled things, kept your food on the table and was generally the weapon of choice. So there's a lot of mythology around it. But um, those two guns are quite famous. They're still manufactured today. And it's funny to me because even the Winchester gun itself, the company, like they went effectively went bankrupt in like 32, I think they We went to a lot of debt building guns for World War I, and then they were trying to pay down that debt. They basically, during the peacetime, they converted their factories into making all kinds of household goods and had like Winchester you know uh catalogs, kind of like the Sears catalog. But none of that worked because when the when the uh, economy tanked during the Great Depression, Winchester was one of the casualties they couldn't get out of their debt, even though the company was still making good weapons. They just couldn't make the business work, so the Otis uh, Ammunition Company bought them and and continued to own them for quite a while. And I don't want to get into a giant history of this thing, but the main thing is everything you know about the Wild West is basically myth and it's largely manufactured, and it's just part of the American mythology about the you know heroes and villains fighting it to the death in the Old West, and that's just largely not true.
1: Right? And uh, yeah, I think with this story about the Winchester Mystery House and Sarah Winchester, that there uh, are a lot of modern Day morals which are put onto her and put onto this story, too. So, um, I think that that's an interesting element that we see playing out throughout the whole story. Uh, so, I'm going to issue a warning here that I'm going to be talking briefly about pregnancy loss. So, if people want to skip over this bit, they can. Uh, so, we're the part of the story where Sarah Winchester and her husband William they have a baby. I believe that she had multiple miscarriages and she finally carried a baby to term and uh, she was born, her name was Annie Pardee Winchester and she was born in June 1866. Very sadly, she died the following month and uh, I believe she had some kind of condition called marasmus, which doesn't seem to be a term that we really use nowadays, but it's some type of protein energy malnutrition. So they were devastated but then in pretty quick succession after that uh, her mother died and then her father-in-law died Oliver Win- Bishop Winchester he died the same in the year and then her husband died as well in 1881 uh, he was only age 43 he died of tuberculosis so at this point she inherits 20 million dollars and a stake in the company too that gave her this continuous income of about one thousand dollars per day which equals somewhere in the vicinity of about $26,000 per day today, which is just a a staggering amount of money.
2: Walking around (laughs) money.
1: Yeah. It makes me think of Brewster's Millions or something.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, So then as the story goes, she's grief stricken and she decides to visit a psychic in Boston. And his name's Adam Coombs. And he claims that she's cursed by the Winchester fortune and he calls it blood money. So again, we're kind of putting morals of today onto that time. And he states that she was haunted by the spirits of the people and the animals who died at the hands of the Winchester rifle and that they were all avenging their deaths by claiming the lives of her family members and she was next. So here's a quote that's floating around from this psychic. This is coming from her her husband. He says for me to tell you that there is a curse on your family which took the life of he and your child. It will soon take you too. It is a curse that has resulted from the terrible weapon created by the Winchester family. Thousands of persons have died because of it, and their spirits are now seeking vengeance. You must start a new life and build a home for yourself and for the spirits who have fallen from this terrible weapon too.
3: So. Blake uh, had already kind of mentioned that the Winchester's didn't create that weapon. They just manufactured one of the ones that was being manufactured.
2: Yeah, they they were partnered with the the Browning and uh Henry uh two gunsmiths that really transformed American shooting. Um, and so the, they they were constantly making improvements, and but unfortunately there was a lot of uh, patent wars uh, at the time, um, and so uh, they got kind of got around that by uh, modifying their designs. So when they came up with the seventy three, it was um, I think if I remember correctly, it was somewhat to work around that the Henry, the guy who invented the Henry repeater. But I know, like, I, I remember, like, Browning made guns for all kinds of people. He's a, he's a gun designer. This was kind of like, you know, Johnny Ive. You've got a designer who's more famous than the company that's making his weapons, you know? so it's, Right, it's, right. Mm-hmm. It, there, it's interesting how many parallels there are around these businesses and sort of the personalities of the people that were making the designs. So it's like... uh uh, a historical version of the uh, Microsoft
3: Apple uh, rifle. Yeah,
2: it reminds me of that. It reminds me of, uh, <laughs> or, you know, people would modify, and they still do. There's a big gun modification business out there. You can, um, like, people will buy guns and then get aftermarket parts and soup them up, chrome them out. You know, it's it's like Pimp My Ride or wow. any of those things. There's <laughs> it's, it's been going on forever. So, yeah. Mm. You know, it's uh, it's
3: interesting as well that uh, you've got this uh, this psychic that says that uh, the people that were killed by this weapon were basically coming after coming after the family mm-hmm. that was the curse uh, so so what was the solution Is that, okay, cause well, she had to keep building
1: the, yeah the solution was that she was to move to the west coast and she was to purchase a home and she needed to build a house there are lots of different theories some say that she was to build this house for the spirits for them to live in and others say that she needed to build this house to confuse the spirits and uh i guess to create a maze where they couldn't find her and kill her so one of the spirits had said to her to as long as you will build you will live stop and you will die so she moves to the santa clara valley area in around 1884 and she buys a very large block of land, a about 161 acres of orchards. And she purchases this eight-bedroom farmhouse. And she Sounds proceeds to build and renovate this house. Very, very modest. <laughs> uh, so she proceeds to build and renovate this house nonstop, 24-7, over the next 38 years. So if she does stop then the spirits are going to get her so this results in her building a remarkable house it's this sprawling maze-like home with at the time 500 rooms 10,000 windows these are the statistics that everyone always quotes 2,000 doors 52 skylights 47 stairways and fireplaces six kitchens three elevators and two ballrooms incredible place And it has lots of quirky features as well. There's very lots of quirky features. There are upside down rail posts and tiny little doors and windows in floors and windows that open onto blank walls and a staircase that leads to a ceiling and a very famous door to nowhere that opens outward to an eight foot drop. So it's um, all very opulently decorated too. She's just ordering fine Italian marble and um, rosewood for her floors. So she has a ton of money and boy is she really spending it too
2: so yeah they missed an opportunity though she would they call it the, the winchester mystery house but when she was alive she could have called it the tortured orchard there you go see that would have
1: <laughs> yeah. so, so obviously at the time she didn't call it the winchester mystery house. she did that not be kind yeah. of strange yeah but we'll, we'll get into that soon <laughs> but there are some strange features there's a recurring motif of spiders throughout the house and then number thirteen as well. So she has uh she planted thirteen trees which line the entrance of the house and there are thirteen drains in a kitchen sink. So Matt, you saw that when you were there. I did. Um
2: wait, like so there's thirteen different holes in the same sink to let the water out? Well, you know how yes. you know a drain. Has has holes in it to keep like chunks of food oh, like from the, going the down the The filters had thirteen holes. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Got it. Got it. I just thought that was a really b- remarkably bad plumbing idea. I think. We should <laughs> well,
1: there's more of that to come as well. But Sarah just had this recurring theme of thirteen throughout her house. She would even set her dining table every night for thirteen guests, and uh, these were spirit guests as well. So one of the uh, biggest points of interest in the house is the the so-called seance room too and it said that she held seances there every midnight until about 2 a.m in the morning obviously it's a tautology there and she has and the the hooks are still there she's got 13 coat hooks for the 13 robes that she used as part of her rituals she was holding these seances every day and she was an incredibly reclusive woman But at the same time, she had Harry Houdini visit the house, and he did a seance with her too. Isn't that nice?
2: It is. It's (laughs) very nice.
1: So so another story goes that uh, the former uh, U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt was a fan of Winchester products. In fact, a limited edition commemorative rifle had been named after him. And one day he made an unannounced visit to the house, and a staff member opened the door He was unaccustomed to visitors and said to the president, you're going to enter the house through the back entrance like the rest of the servants. (laughs) So Roosevelt was so highly offended. He left and he never returned.
2: This sounds like the Andrew Jackson coming to the Bell Witch story. It seems weird. Well, that wouldn't have transferred this one, would it? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, it doesn't work like that. This is a true story. So in another account, Roosevelt requested a visit with Sarah, but he was just flatly refused. So it was said that she was an incredibly difficult mistress of the house, that she used to spy on her workers, and she paid them very little, and if they ever gossiped about her, she would immediately fire them. So she was really mean to them. Uh, and apparently some of her workers too So that she had the, the ability to walk through solid doors and walls, so which is – Quite interesting, an interesting ghost story. And uh, so she died September 5th, 1922, aged 82. So she did survive a lot longer than her other family members. And it was said that her will had been signed 13 times. I think there were 13 pages to the will as well. And it said that the moment that she died, the workers ceased building the house. So they just dropped all of the tools, and that half-hammered nails can still be found throughout the mansion too, and you can find those. When you go on the tour, you can see these half-hammered nails throughout the house. And um, so as soon as she, she passed, her staff went in search of a vault that was in her bedroom, and they cracked that open and they found another vault inside of that.
2: And thirteen and like, more vaults. They, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's yeah. I mean, you you needed to embellish this yeah. <laughs> because yeah, that would have been a good a, a good uh, story. But uh, so they they opened it up and they found the obituaries of her, of her husband and daughter and locks of their hair as well.
2: Oh,
1: so um, very sad. But and as soon as they I, took I those out, the
2: safe was unlocked. True
1: or not? <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah
1: nice nice sorry this is
2: I, I i i this all okay i know i know i don't want to spoil anything but i just want to say historically like when i read this story the first time it all seemed very plausible because it's all right in the heart of the spiritualism movement so yeah yeah the supernatural claims are, are one thing but like the woman obsessed about the fear of the supernatural seems extremely plausible
3: oh absolutely we we still have plenty of that in these days. Yeah. But the thing about spiritualism is it made complete sense. It was absolutely logical. There no holes in any of those beliefs. And yet yeah. the beliefs coming out of this story, uh, well, they're, they're worse than spiritualism uh, because you've got. You know, on the one side, she's kind of trying to confound the spirits and and, uh, confuse them. And then the other half, she's trying to, Mm -hmm. and the other side, she's trying to house them. And I think a lot more people died than, yeah, I mean, she needed to do a lot more work if she was going to house them. But the thing is, is if she was trying to house them, then why would it be so confusing? And if she was trying to confound them, doesn't she know that ghosts can walk through walls? So, you know.
1: So she can, so can sir
3: yeah and so can she so she she should have extra knowledge to know that this isn't going to fool any ghost they can just walk mm-hmm. right through the wall and uh not not have cool. to worry about falling from the door to nowhere and things like that so it's just like the, there's these a mishmash is what it is this mishmash of of disparate beliefs or, or, or claims yeah that that just they don't make sense and yet uh, you know, when, when we were there, it was, I mean, you were standing in line to go through this place like it was a Disneyland attraction. Mm-hmm. You know, people want this more than they do checking out this really interesting house, they want the stories. And um, yeah,
1: well, we, when we went there, we had to line up for a couple of hours to get in for a tour, it's that popular Wow, to this day.
3: What, what does it cost to go see it, or roughly, or you
1: know? Oh boy! Yeah, in eighteen
3: thirty nine some... money, it was
1: yeah, 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 yeah. probably
3: about a thousand dollars. I think. Mean.
2: Oh, I can I can check the tickets because I could I could buy online.
1: Well, it's about I think it was about fifty dollars the last time we went there. Uh, you can do a tour of just the house, or you can also do a tour of the the grounds uh, and the the kind of farmland and everything too. Um, and they they do ghost tours as well around Halloween and flashlight tours, that kind of thing. So they're all, all different prices, but it is not cheap. It's an expensive tour if, that only lasts and, about an hour.
3: And if you want to do a ghost hunt there, that's where they're really cashing in.
1: Let's talk about the ghost stories. I just wanted to close off on the, the whole vault thing um, to say that Sarah had stored these keepsakes uh, and they she was very concerned that someone was going to use those against her in a curse. So that's that's why she kept these um, locks of hair in, in multiple vaults, probably 13 of them. So, yes, there are a lot of uh, ghost stories surrounding the place. And it's interesting because when you go there on a tour, it is not a ghost tour. But a lot of people have claimed that they've experienced all different kinds of paranormal activity while they've been there. And certainly the place does not shy away from Promoting these stories, if you go to their website, you can enter uh, uh, sightings that you've experienced or thing, things that have happened to you when you, you you've been there. People do submit their ghost stories, so they they really do encourage this part of the folklore. And there've been a number of ghost shows that have gone to the Winchester Mystery House. And as Matt said, it it can get pretty expensive to go there because uh, I guess. It, indemnity and insurance and things like that. I think I've heard that it's about $10,000 to go through there to do a ghost hunt. I'm sure that they get people requesting that they can do an investigation there all the time, but you get shows like uh, Ghost Adventures, Ghost Hunters, Most Haunted, Ghost Brothers and BuzzFeed have been there and done shows. But uh, there, there are a lot of claims of phenomena taking place there. Things like cold spots and ghostly lights and phantom footsteps, people hearing phantom organ music in the ballroom. Now, there's a chandelier in the ballroom too, and there are 13 lights in the chandelier. So again, you've got that 13 motif throughout the house. People hear things like the sound of ghostly nails falling to the ground or nails being hammered into the walls and... They'll see the ghosts of people who used to work there, like uh, carpenters and maids, and then they'll see photographs of former staff on the walls and say, oh, that's the ghost that I saw, and uh, be able to identify them. Also, people will see the ghosts of victims of the Winchester rifle. And uh, Sylvia Brown was actually there, I, I think it could have been back in the 1980s, and she conducted a seance at the house And she was able to confirm that there was a curse placed upon Sarah. (laughs) And she also saw the spirit of Sarah. And she saw the ghosts of fallen soldiers from the civil war who live in the house.
2: Bless your heart. Fair enough. (laughs) 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 Uh,
1: But yeah, people do experience all kinds of things. They say that, that they can smell Sarah's perfume, but I don't think we have on record what, perfume she actually wore
2: gunpowder and molasses Um,
1: (laughs) possibly possibly that they can smell her cooking chicken soup from the kitchen and people also say that they hear their name being called and that they hear whispers or screams people feel like they they're pushed or the hair is pulled so you have tons of these experiences matt did you experience anything when you were there
3: no Uh, Hunger.
2: I think I got hungry at one point. I'm looking at the website. They've added. uh, They have an axe throwing experience at the stables now, and a Houdini escape room. So you know, clearly they're uh, adding on just in in case you don't have a supernatural experience. There's a few other things to try.
1: Yeah, definitely. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So that is the the folklore in a nutshell, and that that's what you if you go and. Google this topic. These are the stories that you'll read about. If you look uh, look this up on YouTube, these are the stories that you're going to hear about. This is what everyone is being told. And so I think it's time to look at the true story behind this and to, to look at the history and to bust some of these myths.
2: Yeah. I, th- I would say um, your book was probably the first time I had read a deep dive into the actual history so and uh again i definitely recommend people pick it up it, it goes pretty deep and in and, and lots of other cases too like the myrtles so
1: yeah well thank you and there has been a lot of interest in the winchester mystery house of late and that's why i thought you know we haven't tackled this topic before on monster talk i have been interviewed about it many times and have written about it and done a lot of research so It's absolutely time for us to to do
2: a show on this. Sarah Winchester, not quite what she was made out to be?
1: Absolutely not. No, that once you really start peeling back the layers of the folklore, the story just completely falls apart. And as you said, when I first uh, heard about this story, it seemed plausible, not the ghosts and, and this and that, but certainly the aspects of her being a haunted woman and thinking that she had this curse Placed upon her, and I will admit that in early articles that I wrote about this topic, I retold the story, and I came up with, for me, plausible natural explanations for why she believed these things. And uh, then I came across a fantastic book. I think it's the absolutely the best resource that's out there. A book by Mary Jo Agnoffo. She's a, a, a historian. She wrote a book called *Captive of the Labyrinth* and she really just bust this whole story open. So this is, uh, I mean, there are certainly things that I've researched myself too, but she really opened this up and um, was able to explain uh, a lot of the claims um, for this story. So Sarah Winchester, a lot of people actually knew her as uh, Sally. That was her her nickname during her life. Uh, Aunt Sally as well, because she had uh, sisters and nieces and nephews. So she was very well liked I'm going to get into that so it's it's very unlikely anyway that she had a, a guilty conscience um, so as Blake's kind of touched upon too, the Winchester company didn't only make guns it was those were one of the many kinds of items that the Winchester company made that they were also although well, they, they started their business in making men's business shirts. And then they branched out into other areas. They made a lot of household items like irons and silverware and flashlights and garden tools and even roller skates and, of course, fruit. So <laughs> she was mostly known for the orchards that she had on the property there. And they grew apples and plums and apricots and almonds and walnuts. And these were all sold under her packing label.
0: Understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every
2: Wednesday on all major podcast platforms, and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Chinwag Pod and Wagon.
0: Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat
2: and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you
0: do when the woman you love dies?
1: appears that there was no psychic, that she, there's no record of her ever meeting with any kind of psychic and the name Adam Coons first appears in a 1967 book by a woman named Susie Smith. So yeah, there's just no uh, information stating that she believed in psychics or that she had visited the psychic. Um, So she had actually moved to the West coast Uh, because she wanted to start afresh and I think she already had some family members there too. She wanted to be closer to them and also had plans to bring her family to the West coast and they could just all start their their lives there. So when she built the house, as I said, obviously it wasn't called the Winchester Mystery House. So she'd named it Leonardo Villa, excuse my Spanish, it's terrible. So that's Spanish for house on the flatland and The reason she named it this was that the valley reminded her of the Lenarda Alavisa in the Pyrenees. She visited there with her husband in better times. So I think one of the most interesting things about this is that uh, she built this house in a style that was really popular of that day. And uh, there were other people who had uh, built these oversized and unique houses. It was a real trend of the time for the wealthy. And there were several other people of similar social standing who undertook projects on a, a similar scale to that. So we look at that house now and it's really one of the last ones standing. We'll also talk about the um, the Hayes Mansion too. That's a house which is still around, which is in a, a similar style. But she had a very keen interest in architecture and she subscribed to architectural journals and she drafted many of the plans and she came from a family of woodworkers as well. And uh, she used to share some projects with her husband. So she, like, you'll be interested in this. She loved technology. So she incorporated many features that people at the time found to be strange. Things like elevators and indoor plumbing, bathrooms and kitchens that were designed to conserve water. So she was really ahead of her time.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's interesting to think about she had what would effectively to us be unlimited resources and a, a great deal of curiosity and she could try out things that you might think about for your house, but can't because you don't have the free resources, the time, the money. If you could just do whatever comes to your mind, your house might start to look a little weird, too. You know, it's, but she's also just trying out stuff. You know, it's, it's fabulous. And I think you'll, you're probably going to cover this, but she was also providing employment at a time when it was hard to come by.
1: Yeah, we'll totally get into that. Yeah. And uh, it just makes me think of weird people with money today, like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and all the kinds of things that they do.
2: Yep. So it was just a matter of time before she had to build a rocket. That's what we do.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yep, that was her rocket. <laughs> uh, but by all accounts, she was an incredibly intelligent woman. And that when she was a child, she'd learned she was a polyglot and she could speak multiple languages and she was really great at uh, mathematics and science and musical composition and was considered at the time to be a child prodigy. So uh, people really undersell her to say that she used automatic writing to receive construction plans from the spirits.
2: Wow. (laughs) Yeah.
1: That kind of thing. But um, yeah, she was very reclusive and she didn't, even with all of her money, she didn't host uh, social events, and she didn't attend society events. So this kind of thing really made her the subject of a lot of gossip. She was also quite shy. She'd lost most of her teeth, and she wore a veil. And she had rheumatoid arthritis too, Ew. that seriously affected her hands and feet. Mm-hmm. And so that explains another feature in the house: these switchback stairs or easy rises. Uh, she was only four foot ten in height as well. Wow. So um, you know that was. Those were built for her convenience. But when I was there, they seriously told us that these stairs were designed to slow down the spirits as they chased her.
3: That's how those work. work. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that would
1: work. (laughs) Yeah, but I, I don't think they said that the time that you were there with me Matt, but i well, know that i remember I, hearing from them
3: they 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 actually um i think they did say that or they said something of that nature there was a paranormal reason that these stairs were so low and they were going to confuse the uh, uh the the ghosts and trip them up and everything and it's just amazing
1: yeah oh, yeah ridiculous that the people believe this and retell it as yeah. well but then you're being told that from the source So where did all of these stories come from? Well, there are a couple of avenues for that. So as I said, she was the subject of much gossip during her life. And in around uh, 1895, there was an article that came out in the San Jose Mercury Herald. And it started a lot of rumours. So this article was titled, A Woman Who Thinks She Will Die When Her House Is Built. And the legends really grew from there. So in this article, she was... Yeah, you know, so these are the days of yellow journalism as well. Blake, we've, we've talked about this on the show.
2: We in the have, past. Um, and, and yellow journalism is associated with lots of uh, outrageous lies, buried in sometimes some truth. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, you've got the uh, Hearst newspapers uh, against the Pulitzer papers, if I remember correctly. I think that was the big rivalry. But uh, and I think, if I remember correctly, it was called yellow journalism because one of the papers published a comic book strip, or comic strip called uh, The Yellow Kid, which was uh, a leading sort of, uh, it, it was a very popular comic strip at the time. So I don't, yeah, anyway, mm. Yellow Journalism, not a glorious time for journalism, but very memorable uh, in American history.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And so in this article, she was accused of being really strange and just having way too much money and being excessive. Uh, in everything that she was doing. And they also cast her as the conscience of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, that she was shouldering responsibility for the numerous deaths caused by the guns. They said that she was mentally ill. Another amazing story that they said is uh, that she had a houseboat in Burlingame, and that was true. But the press speculated wildly that she'd feared a flood of biblical proportions, and so she built her own new Noah's Ark.
2: Do you get the feeling that maybe part of this is... Um... It was a time when women were being suppressed a lot in general. And then here's this incredibly powerful woman who largely doesn't have a voice. I mean, she's, she's doing things in the community, but she doesn't, she's not doing her own press. And so people could just make up whatever they want to about her. And I imagine people are jealous because, good Lord, she's rich. And we've already, I mean, I'm no fan of Elon Musk, but a lot of the stuff that's said about him and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos is entirely sour grapes. It's people who really don't like to see that much concentrated wealth. And I get that, and I understand the the, the motivation, but they don't need to make up the stories that they make up. But they do it anyway. Absolutely, but yeah. there's some
1: ir- there's some irony here. So she is uh Sarah Winchester is often conflated with a faith healer by the name of Mary Folsom Hayes Chinnawith, and she um had founded the True Life Church. So in the days of spiritualism, but the uh, the irony here is that her sons Everest and Jay Hayes owned this newspaper. So. This is really strange that this story in some regards is about their mother. Their mother is a a spiritualist. Their mother um, set up this church and she built a very similar house to the Hayes Mansion uh, in San Jose. I believe at one point it had maybe a hundred rooms and then there was a fire. So they rebuilt it in this kind of Mediterranean style And to this day, it has about 60 plus rooms. So, again, we're talking about these really unique, oversized houses, but this was a building trend of the time. So it wasn't only Sarah Winchester who was building her house. There were neighbors who were building these houses and then accusing her of having too much money and um, spending excessively and building crazy houses.
2: Well, this is a weird question, but... How was the temperature there? I mean, like I mean a house that big seems like especially built before central air seems like it'd be really hard to keep it temperature controlled
1: the climate for the most part I mean the bay area has certainly in san francisco it, it's i mean it just chills due to the bone, the winds, and the cold there, but you've got just various parts um that are cooler than others, so I used to live in Berkeley and used to get these beautiful breezes that would come in from the bay, mm. but if you would drive to Uh, to Walnut Creek, it suddenly hit this wall where it was 110 degrees in the shade. And uh, so, yeah, you've got these weird microclimates. But uh, down in San Jose, it can certainly get hot. And I believe that Sarah Winchester was a very kindly employer, so she wasn't this mean mistress that she was made out to be. And on extremely hot days, she would give her staff the day off. But certainly with a big, airy place like that, uh, I mean, for the most part, the climate there is, is very mild. I mean, we're talking 60s and 70s.
2: You know, I, I guess that makes sense for orchards to, to be functional, right? So, yeah.
1: Good climate for, for that kind of thing. Yeah. But, you know, basically Sarah uh, had these stories written about her, but they were really about Mary Hayes, Shinnoweth, and not not about her. So it's just very strange that this would happen, and I don't know much about the history of for why they did that, but Sarah was not a spiritualist, and her personal companion and secretary, uh, who was with her until her death, denied that her boss was a spiritualist and said that she was a practicing Episcopalian.
2: Hmm, <laughs> it's like a ominous. Hmm, Episcopalian. I see. What? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. But mediums were very popular in those days is this was the heyday of spiritualism. San Jose had a really active and open community of spiritualists, including Leland Stanford. Like,
2: Yeah, I believe I've heard of him. Yeah. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the, these beliefs were absolutely around. So, again, something plausible. Perhaps she did believe in these things, and she wasn't speaking out against all these claims made against her either. I mean, surprisingly, she didn't sue them at the time. Nowadays, that would be done.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's weird. Like my my impression of her is that she, I, in a lot of ways, rose above this and was doing things that she felt were right. But I, I, you know, without her diaries or something, it's hard to say, right? So,
1: well, that's the thing. I mean, she did leave a wealth of evidence behind. She left letters. She left all kinds of legal documents, and those are explored by Mary Jo Ignofo in her book. So we we do have all of this correspondence and accounts of people. knew her as well excellent so that's why we're able to to really price this open but uh you know for example we should put links to that in the
2: show notes too as well by the way so your book and hers and like so people want to dig deeper clearly there's a lot to learn here this is interesting
1: oh absolutely and so for example the the seance room um was not a seance room it was a bedroom that was used by by various staff and uh the the people who now own the house, added the coat hooks.
2: Isn't any séance room one nap away from being a bedroom, and isn't any bedroom <laughs> one séance away from being a séance room?
1: Wouldn't put it that way. Yeah. So Harry Houdini did visit the house. That part is true, but the dates are inaccurate. So he didn't turn up and do a séance with her. Uh, he visited the place after her death in 1924.
3: So Although, that's right. I, I remember that. Not that I was there, I'm to I remember
1: that. I <laughs> so, <laughs> so when you go uh, on the so, tour, so Matt, you will remember this that there are a lot of really weird features in the house that we've talked about, and uh, these there's a natural explanation for this. A lot of these were a direct result of the San Francisco earthquake, which hits uh, April eighteenth, yes. nineteen hundred and six. So, at the time. Uh, floors collapsed and pipes were left sticking out of the house and chimneys and rooms were sealed off. So the original house had seven stories and these were reduced down to three stories. So the paranormal theory, though, is that the spirits were displeased with her handiwork because it appeared that she was nearing completion of the house. So they're the ones who caused the 1906 earthquake. Mm. But you didn't know that.
2: From seven stories to three stories, nature is a cruel editor. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: is uh, So when this happened, when the earthquake hit, she considered just demolishing the house. And in the end, portions were sealed off instead. And rather than rebuilding the place, they they just made it as safe as they possibly could. And when you go through today, you'll see sections where they stopped working, sections that are sealed off and all of these you know, very peculiar uh, features in the house that have these actual explanations. So the stairway to nowhere once led to an upper floor and the door to nowhere led out to a balcony. So even Sarah herself, she saw the place after the earthquake and she said it looked as though it had been built by a crazy person. So she was very aware and mindful of how she was being seen by people. Some people say too that she had a quirky sense of humor.
2: Yeah, I was just that's a that's a big insight that that some of these features were damaged by earthquake and left looking bizarre. You know that's I I this story kind of infuriates me and I I got kind of mad when I read your write up on it because it's like wow this woman sounds pretty awesome and she's gotten the bad end of history on her. Totally,
1: absolutely, yeah, and you know we'll talk about that more in a second too, but. Some people say that she had a really quirky sense of humour. If you go on YouTube, you can find some very old interviews with people who knew her children or people who were children at the time and speak very highly of her. And uh, some people say that she had a quirky sense of humour and she just kind of left some of these features behind as artefacts because she thought it was funny. So there's a a possibility too. It's certainly more plausible than the whole haunting uh, curse theory. So, but in another twist to this too, and I've already touched upon this, and that is that a lot of these quirky features were added in after her death by the new owners. So according to her former carpenter, his name was James Perkins, he said the more irregular features which have made the house a well-famed oddity were built after Mrs. Winchester's death.
0: Hmm.
2: More of those aftermarket modifications we were talking about. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> So the construction as well, it was not 24-7. It stopped and it started over the years. And Sarah didn't even live in the house after the earthquake. For the last 15 years or so of her life, she lived in nearby Atherton. And she had about a dozen homes in the Bay Area. So she had the, the um, houseboat in Burlingame, house in Atherton, and the, the now as we know it, the Winchester Mystery House, but she didn't actually live there. But she spent a lot of her money... Not only on the house, yes, she spent a great deal of money on that, but also on uh, philanthropy and on her family. She had her sisters and their children, and she founded the William Wirt Winchester Hospital, which was for tuberculosis. It's now the Veterans Hospital in West Haven, Connecticut. Wow. She was really very generous, giving a lot of her money away and just didn't get the credit for it. But as for the house, she really built it as a hobby, I think that it made her feel like she was closer to her husband because of his interest in building and coming from a family of woodworkers as well. And as Blake touched upon, there was a lot of economic hardship in the late 19th century, and Sarah was very kindly trying to do her bit to keep construction workers and other staff employed. So she paid them very handsomely in the day, more than other places were uh, paying these kinds of staff. So she was really doing it out of the kindness of her heart. Um, she wasn't this, again, wasn't this mean boss that she's uh, put up to be. But the, the place was purchased and is still in the, same, the hands of the same family, the Brown family, John H. Brown. He had uh, owned theme parks and designed roller coasters. So I think you really have this kind of theme park theme of the house nowadays. So he's really maintained that. Uh, apparently, he had designed a roller coaster and uh, a woman was killed writing it, and so he was trying to kind of divert attention away from that by buying the Winchester Mystery House and turning it into this kind of amusement park that it is today. So he bought it and he opened it up to the public, and very strangely a lot of stories of hauntings and seances appeared after her death, and so he was really cultivating these stories. And um, again, they're, they're, they're told to this day. So there are books and Movies and there's even a musical about Sarah Winchester and these create a lot more layers of fiction and they keep retelling these stories. They've really damaged her reputation over the years and Sarah was and is very misunderstood. So I think it's important that we get to the bottom of this and read a book like Mary Jo Agnoffo's book, Captive of the Labyrinth, and um, you know, I cover a lot of this in my chapter as well in Haunting America but to get a a more accurate portrayal of her life and times. Um, There's also a quote from her lawyer. uh, His name was Samuel Lieb, and he said that Sarah was as sane and clear-headed a woman as I've ever known. She had a better grasp of business and financial affairs than most men. So when you get these glimpses of people who knew her and worked with her, uh, it really paints a very different picture to the one that we're told when we visit the house or when we do a little bit of superficial digging into the stories.
2: Yeah, you've got a supernatural story that sounds plausible, but now that you've dug into it, there's basically nothing to it. And it's one of those, like, I mean, there's nothing inherently implausible about a woman becoming overwhelmed by guilt mm-hmm. and being Brief. caught up in spiritualism, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But <laughs> it's also not true. So it's like, yeah, it's not implausible, but unless you question it and like look to see where it comes from, it's completely sticky and I mean, it dominates all the web pages about the site. And like you say, there's now this sort of parallel slash adjacent uh, supernatural stuff that's been glommed onto it. Like as people have been having experiences, because clearly if, if her story is true, then if you were inclined to believe in such things, then of course a place that was designed to trap spirits would have, you know, trapped spirits and so therefore you it's like you're completely primed to expect the paranormal that's it's just fascinating they they built a paranormal hotspot entirely from a structure made of poo poo. working on that clean title for a tag
1: (laughs) and and again i'll admit that when i first heard the story i just started repeating this story and trying to find explanations to Justify why she might have thought this way, why she might have done the things that she did, but you just dig a little deeper, and you'll find that this is just completely made up.
3: I think one of the big problems is is you get this this character, Adam Coons. If, if somebody writes about this person as if it's fact, you don't really think, oh, this person's, you know, there's a real possibility this person's completely made up. Mm-hmm. You don't really think that way. If it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's imprint, this person existed, blah, blah, blah. Well, then you kind of take oh, so it as... so much detail. If, if you pardon the phrase, you take it as gospel. And it's uh, mm-hmm. it's not something you think about doing because we don't question, you know, not not very many of us have gone and done the research to actually see that Sarah Winchester actually existed. We just believe it when people tell us that she existed. You know, we are not going down and looking up the documentation or all this kind of stuff. So when someone tells us that Adam Coons is a real person, we're also not going to see the documentation that that's true. And so we just take it on faith that this guy is real and she went and visited him and now she's got all these crazy thoughts in her head. Now we're all thinking, of course, this guy's a fraud telling her this stuff and he was probably just getting money from her we don't
2: think about the fact that he never even existed yeah exactly we can totally imagine a keeping her on the hook you know milking her for cash you know being friends with a local builder making sure that there's somebody always getting little grifts on this like i can imagine an entire infrastructure of, of of manipulation and ripoff and it's just not there it's just not real yeah but
1: uh matt you'll remember too when we went to the Myrtles Plantation in uh, Louisiana, in uh, St. Francisville. When you ask questions, they'll say, oh, yes, we have evidence for this. There's uh, the fellow who used to own the building. They'll talk about his diaries and how they're available at the local library. So they have all of these things to kind of shut you down if you have questions. So Mm -hmm. we went to the local library and we asked about this and we spoke with the the head librarian there and there was absolutely – there's, there's no diary, no evidence of, of any kinds of uh, letters uh, of this particular person to support these these claims. But these are the kinds of bits of information, false information that you'll be handed at places like the Myrtle's Plantation and the Winchester Mystery House. They'll just keep you... If you ask questions, I'll say, oh, no, there's proof of this. And, and we have this mm-hmm. and it's locked away, I guess, in the vault with the, the locks of hair as well. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, we, we have this this proof and this evidence to support all of the things that we're saying. But it's incredible when you go on the tour because they're always conducted by teenagers and they're reciting this script in a very robotic fashion. And they're, I mean, there's no room for questions, really. They're just telling you these things and you're leaving the place and retelling these stories. It's quite a thing that they have going.
3: Yeah. It, it, it's a bizarre thing to uh, to, to witness, you know, and, and 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 it is so robotic the way they're just you know they've memorized their script, and there's really no room for questions. It's this is just what it is. I'm 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 reading to you from the Bible. Here it is. You <laughs> don't ask questions, you know, and that's that's kind of what's going on here. And you know, as you're going through it, there's a lot of things you're like, why? You know, you pass by this one room where there are several sort of old-fashioned brooms standing up in the Mm. middle of the room. Mm. And it's really eerie when you walk by this. You see these things, they look like they're balancing. Obviously, they're affixed to there somehow, but why? Why would they do that? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, but it just leaves you unsettled as you walk by it because you're kind of rushed by it. You don't get to go up and look at anything. You're just going kind to of rush by these bizarre broomsticks standing in the middle of
2: a room. You know, is it were they decorated by brooms to go? <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> nice. just brooms. But the the whole
1: the whole thirteen thing is a fabrication. And there's a um, uh, like a a big shrub, um, example of tapisry, and they've turned it into the number thirteen. And so all of this stuff has been added. Matt do you want to tell everyone
3: about the the chandelier? Oh, yeah, it's so convincing. There's this uh chandelier that has like these gas jets for the the flames and uh supposedly when it arrived it only had 12 and she was not happy about that at all. So she had another one added. And and this very, you know, rich woman who uh, the, you go through the rest of the house and there's a lot of um, yeah, I don't know if I'd call it perfection, but there's a lot of really great handiwork, you know, throughout the house. But this chandelier has this like 13th gas jet just like stuck on at a bizarre angle. Like, you know, they just kind of <laughs> stuck it there. And that's going to make her happy? I I you know, it's it's so obvious that it was added afterwards.
2: So you're saying that the the as far as this being made up or this sort of gaslighting is a prime example? Yes, prime yeah.
1: example. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and we handed you that one, didn't we? <laughs> another thing that Matt we've encountered uh, in a lot of these um, supposedly haunted places too are that they've got contemporary mirrors and paintings on the walls and yeah. uh, you know chandeliers that they're saying, oh, this was this beautiful antique that, you know, period style.
2: This is the period iPhone that she used to use for <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh,
1: but that yeah, that this this particular I'm I'm thinking about the haunted mirror at the um Myrtles plantation mm. that they're yes. claiming that this is this mirror is two hundred years old. And to look at the chandelier, there's not a a fine quality chandelier that was handmade in Germany 200 years ago. I mean, this is just a modern, something I picked up from Home Deco, Home Deco, yep. and just <laughs> tacked this extra light onto and uh, and just telling people that this is uh, her handiwork. And it's it's offensive. I mean, this is a, a highly intelligent woman and uh, they're just making her out to be this this. Mad person, and it's uh, a real slight on her character.
3: Totally agree.
2: Yeah. And I'm trying not to make a pun about her being four foot ten and, and slight. Um, yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you can yeah, try given very you, hard. <laughs> we've given you a lot of material to work with. You don't have
2: to go for the low hanging stuff. I, I'm, I'm restraining myself. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like Houdini, I'm restraining myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, but it is a it's a fascinating story, and uh, I just think it's really important to talk about this and to do shows like this and to get the truth out there uh, because it's really we're the, uh, really dealing with uh, a lot of folklore that's overshadowing the truth.
2: Yeah, this is the kind of uh, folklore or legend that's insidious. Because it seems so plausible, and yet it's also harmful in that it destroys the reputation of a person who sounds like they deserve a very close second look, you know, historically. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, they deserve better than this. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But the good news is that, you know, we have podcasts like this one and books that are out there like uh, Captive of the Labyrinth that tell the truth. And I think that that's just what we need to disseminate the truth.
2: Yes. I agree. All right. Yeah. So, so I'm glad that we
1: talked about this because, yeah. again, I've been interviewed about this topic so many times, and I thought we've got to do an episode on this. And I think to the point where you and I had thought that maybe we'd already done
2: one. Well, we we definitely <laughs> talked about it before, but we didn't give it this level of coverage at all, right? So it, yeah. Yeah. It, I think we've mentioned it, I believe, on two episodes, but it, it's this is the first, as far as I know, the first full episode entirely dedicated to this topic um so yeah
1: well matt was suggesting too that we should do an episode of based on a true story and look at the movie
2: oh that'll make that winchester repeaters <laughs>
1: there we go we got a final one in there
2: that's known as the pun that won the west yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow i suddenly
2: have to go oh, to on that note,
1: i think we've better in this episode <laughs> I agree. Nothing, nothing more to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. That's well, thanks excellent. Thanks guys
1: for joining me to talk about this. It's, this is a episodes. This, this topic's near and dear to my heart, I think, because it's yeah. you know, just such a interesting combination of folklore and history. And uh, one, another one of those stories that I've been fascinated by since I was a kid. And just to think, you know, I was an adult before I knew the, the true story and just really, Believed in all of the myths for the longest time there, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this episode are only aware of the myths.
2: Exactly.
3: You well, know. and it's – I think that the big lesson is, again, in in the true definition of skepticism, which is don't take things at face value. And the problem that we all were faced with on this one is we were given the choice of the supernatural uh, explanation being real – or her being mm-hmm. kind of crazy being real. And those were the only two options we mm-hmm. were kind of given. So we went with the more probable one, not realizing that there was an even more probable one mm-hmm. reading.
2: It's the old false so, dichotomy. And you're absolutely right. It's just the, you gotta question your assumptions because frequently and that I'm always or so far. I've always been pleasantly surprised when I discover that something I took for true is completely wrong. It's fascinating to me. I love I love having my world shook a little bit it's nice so yeah oh i i agree
1: too yeah i mean that's really solving Mm -hmm. a mystery yeah
2: yep monster talk you've been listening to monster talk the science show about monsters you've been listening to a discussion with karen stolzno matt baxter and me about the many convoluted and unfortunate legends surrounding the winchester mystery house Since I don't get to do my visit before this episode actually goes live, I'll try and add some supplementary photos to the show notes on our website at monstertalk.org once I'm done visiting this week. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Big Picture Science. Good job, Brain. And My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at AdvertiseCast.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org Forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much so don't feel compelled to buy new ones and we love Kindle so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you for making Monster Talk a part of your listening life.
1: in a Monster House presentation.